I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer inviting you to sit back and get ready for one of the most entertaining programs on the air. Growing Boulder is a playbook for life. Yes, you will hear from world-renowned experts, but you'll also hear from people who somewhere along the way decided they simply wanted more out of life. They made the decision to start Growing Boulder and ended up living in a way they never thought possible. And the best part of their message is that you can do it too. You'll hear from big-time successes who thought uh, maybe her career was over when the national magazine she was the editor of suddenly went out of business. We'll talk to a musician whose resemblance to Paul McCartney took him straight to Abbey Road Studios and a multi-award-winning actor, singer, dancer, and great guy, Joel Gray, on why his best performance may still be ahead of him. And that's what we mean when we say this is Growing Boulder. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Fremde, étranger, stranger. You know, if you're really lucky in showbiz, you get a role or a song in a show so juicy, you can take your part and make it so much your own that the audience can't imagine anybody else doing it. And that's what our next guest has been able to do at least twice, once with Cabaret and again with Wicked. Yeah, not many out there can say they have scored the entertainment hat trick with a Golden Globe, an Oscar, and a Tony, but he, in fact, has. Over his long and varied career, he is a man who has indeed done it all, but he's not done yet as he's begun an entirely new career in his 70s as a creative photographer. And now that he's turning 80, well, he is showing us all what can be done. Let's say hello to the incredible Mr. Joel Gray. Hey, Joel, how are you? Hi, hi, everybody. Well, we're, th- we're thrilled to have you, and I don't know if you like to talk about your age, don't know how you feel about being 80, but, but you are certainly uh, becoming a role model for the rest of us. You make it look like it can be a vibrant, challenging, exciting time in life. I am actually having an extraordinarily good time. Fun, interesting, uh, rich, and I'm busier, oddly enough, now than I can remember in many, many years. You know, and you're kind of a risk taker, Joel. I mean, you always have been. People say, well, sure, he was in Cabaret. Of course he got famous. Who wouldn't have wanted to be in that? But when you did it, it was so different, such a risk, something no one had ever done before. Did you think this would be the role of a lifetime? No, I didn't. Nobody knew that that the, the Cabaret on stage would be a success. As a matter of fact, it was... Uh, highly touted as something not to bet on. Huh. It was about Nazis and uh, in, 19, in the 1930s. And who goes and makes a musical out of that? Well, Candor and Ebb and Hal Prince. And um, I was a part of that. And it was exciting because it was such a surprise. And obviously very well received. You know, we've talked about how nobody could ever play that role without being compared to you. How much of the MC in look and movement and makeup, how much input did you have in all that? A lot. A lot. Hal Prince, the director, had a very specific idea in mind because it, it was a character that he remembered from being in Germany in the war. And uh, it was a character in a nightclub that he saw. It was it was a much um, more specific character that he saw, and I wanted, and we wanted together ultimately to make him more ambiguous and more mysterious. Well, there's another role that you've played pretty well too, and for many years you were introduced as, oh well, this is Mickey Katz's son, and then things kind of turned I around. Still am. But but see, people also now say, well, sure, there's Jennifer Gray's father. Right. So you're, you <laughs> got three generations. It's pretty good. Not bad at all. You know, it, it's interesting, Joel. It seems like so many actors uh, at a certain point all of a sudden discover an ability to paint or do something else creative. In your 70s, you decided to take up photography. What was the attraction? What led you to believe that, that you could actually have a, a third or fourth career as a great photographer? Well, the the way that all happened is that I've always been interested in photography. I've been a collector 
of other people's photography. And I have taken pictures most of my adult life, especially when I uh, became a dad. And I, you know, took pictures of my kids all the time. And then when I would travel on on uh, film shoots and television things to other places, I would always take pictures and bring them home to show them where I was. And never, ever expecting to be uh, myself a... Um, a photographer that people, you know, really looked at uh, in a ser- more serious way. And one day I was having dinner with a friend, and he was a, a great art director. And he said, what is this over here? I said, oh, I was playing around with making a print of uh, one of my old uh, negatives. And he said, do you have any more like this? And I said, yeah, oh, boy, did I have a lot more. <laughs> And so I handed him a, a bunch of photographs from the past, and he said, um, let me call you in a few weeks. And he did, and he, uh, I came in there, and he had made a book and said, um, you, are, you are a photographer, and this is, uh, this is going to be your first book. And it was within months, and then I had a, uh, my first exhibit, within months after that. So I was off to the races uh, about 10 years ago. I've just finished my third book that's been out and working on a fourth. You know, one of the things, Joel, I think that makes you relate, helps you relate so much to to the people that admire your work is it's not about the tool. You don't have to spend thousands and thousands on your cameras. You've done magic with a cell phone camera. Well, I did my uh, my third book, was a book uh, made with my 1.3 megapixel hmm. Nokia phone that shouldn't have made a decent picture to save its life. <laughs> and somehow um, it had a, such a quirky attitude by itself that it ended up, there were a lot of photographs that really were so sharp that they could be made into uh, 30 by 40 photographs. With that crappy camera. <laughs> so how do you work now, Joel? Is, is it all digital? Do you know when you take a... a, a... No, I love, I love film, but um, I got a cell phone, a new iPhone, and um, I find that when I, I'm inspired by something, it's just kind of always there. And, and what makes a good photograph, and what subject matter are you attracted to? Oh, it can be anything, but it's... It's usually something about time-worn subjects, Mm. whether or not it's buildings or uh, animals or whatever. Somehow it it has a feeling of timelessness. Mm. You know, that's that's really interesting because not only has your career been truly remarkable, not just because of the era you grew up in, but because of the fearlessness that you have in living your life to the fullest. And that's where our program gets its name, Growing Bolder. Why, why is that so important to you? Well, it's not something I consciously said, well, <laughs> you've got to do something fresh if you want to stay fresh. And I never thought about that. I'm just always, I'm, I'm very excited about um, anything creative and visual, especially. And uh, I don't think about anything except following that, that instinct. And it's not something I plan ever. Folks, we're talking to Joel Gray. Now, this is a guy who's an icon. He has an Oscar, a Tony, and a Golden Globe. And yet in his 70, you know, he, he risked his reputation as an artist to start something entirely new and become a photographer. And now in his 80s, as he's told us, uh, he's thoroughly enjoying himself, uh, living every part of it. You know, Joel, we didn't have role models. You didn't have role models like yourself when, when you were in your 20s or 30s, did, did you? Do you just come by this naturally? I don't know. I don't know. I just am interested. I wake up in in the morning and I'm usually interested in what's out there today. What's going to happen? Who's who's going to be, you know, exciting to look at? And what's going to be uh, the surprise? I love surprises. 
And speaking of which, I know you've you've done a number of television guest shots over the last few years. Some of those, you know, kind of risky as well. Is there more of this coming from you? Are you still, you know, out there looking for these great roles as well as the photography? I'm leaving tomorrow for Canada to do a role on a sci-fi uh, channel called Warehouse 13. And um, it's a it's kind of way out there kind of role, too. And again, that's an awesome show. I mean, I, I, I bet your agent is kind of saying, Joel, can't you just do like a, a guest shot where you play yourself in a sitcom, come in, say hi, and leave? But no, you you really are, are digging deep. That hasn't happened. <laughs> they know you too well, don't they? I don't know what that is. Well, I got to tell you, we love everything you do. We're big fans of your photography, and of course, we're fans whenever we hear that you're going to be in a, a, a TV show or on Broadway once again. And folks, I, I want to encourage you to check out his photography and learn more about him at joelgray.com. G-R-E-Y. Keep an eye out on Broadway movies and TV, because you never know where you're going to see this guy there. A great visit with an American classic. Thanks, Joel. Blackbirds singing in the dead of Take these broken wings and learn to fly. Coming up, Paul McCartney. Well, sort of. Anyway, there are millions across the country who say this guy is the next best thing. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with an accredited chest pain center and heart failure program, as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble I'm Bill Schaefer, and that uh, chiseled young man over there is Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And, Mark, we talk about this all the time. Some way, the best way to make a change in your life is to take advantage of whatever it is that makes you different or unique. And that's what John Babcock did, and it, it totally changed his life. Yeah, ever since John was a young man, everybody told him how much he looked like Paul McCartney. And then, lo and behold, one day a light bulb finally went off in his head. And the next thing you know, he picks up a guitar and actually becomes the top Paul McCartney tribute artist in the country. Some might say the world. On stage, he looks just like McCartney, and as you're about to hear, he sounds just like him as well. A lot of people love the Beatles, but how many have ever performed as one? Or ever recorded at Abbey Road Studios? Or toured with the cast of Beatlemania? Perhaps the only person in the world who's done it all is John Babcock. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You're only waiting for this moment to arise It's a love affair that began at the age of five when he was one of the millions who first saw the Fab Four on The Ed Sullivan Show. She was just 17, you know what I mean. John was fascinated, not just by the Beatles, but by music. His father was an accomplished jazz drummer who introduced his son to the drums at the age of three. And by the time he was 11... He was in the drum corps, finishing up with the prestigious Hawthorne, New Jersey, Muchachos. By the time he was in high school, it was apparent his career would be in music, which is when something else became apparent. Were people telling you you looked like Paul? Yeah, yeah, especially at, you know, at the time. I, I got this since I was in high school, you know. And that didn't hurt, did it? Being a yeah. high school kid and having girls come up and go, hey, you kind of look like... saying, hey, you look just like Ringo. But he also had the talent and the dream to be a successful recording artist of his own. He'd written quite a few songs, but to record them, as he saw it, there was only one option the most famous recording studio in the world, Abbey Road. It's a mecca for me. I gotta go there. 
I got to record there. I mean, most people are happy enough just to go to the crosswalk and walk across the crosswalk, get their picture taken, which is, you know, it's the most famous crosswalk walk in the, in, in the world. You which know, you Abbey did. Road. Of course, you had to do that. <laughs> Took the shoes off, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> in great McCartney tradition. But to go there, doing your own music as an artist is just phenomenal. So he went a number of times. He recorded his own music in the very studio used by the Beatles, but even that wasn't enough. So we made a request. I want to use one of the actual mics that they used, that the Beatles used, that Pink Floyd used when they sang, uh, recorded uh, Dark Side of the Moon in Studio Two. One of the ones that John Lennon or Paul McCartney was sang on. What does your tell you to do? Loved it so much. From 85 to 1995, I did it over a half a dozen sessions there. Every uh, year or two, I'd go over and cut. Some, if I was working on a new album, I'd say, i got to go to Abbey Road and cut some tracks, you know? There's all the four Beatles plus George Martin, and they're working on Across the Universe. That's in uh, February of 1968. And then this photo. In the exact same spot. In the same spot. Yeah, on we the same out, piece of equipment. Same piece of equipment. Same organ and same Leslie speaker. <laughs> But the only thing he didn't have was the same success. It was all about getting a record deal. I got a record deal. You know? And I quickly learned that there's only one thing worse than not having a record deal is, is having a bad record deal. But avoiding a record deal kept him out of the spotlight until he'd heard of an opening with Beatlemania. They said, hey, you know, come on, we're going to go on and do a tour. You can play Paul McCartney and we're going to go on a 15-city tour. Close your eyes. Played all kinds of, you know, 10, 15,000 seat arenas. Cast of Beatlemania, and I played with some of the original guys that played on Broadway. We went out and did it, and a lot of fun. A lot of fun to do it. But never thought I would do that when I was, you know, 24. Yeah, or 64. He did over 15,000 shows as Paul over the years to the point where performing as the Beatle had completely taken over. Is it frustrating even now that here we're doing a story on John Babcock, but half of it's Paul McCartney questions? No, that, that's, that's a great compliment. It's a wonderful compliment, you know. If you're going to borrow, borrow from the best. Frost upon the window, starting to get light. This is one of John's originals, called Frost Upon the Window. The McCartney influence is unmistakable, yet it's all John Babcock. No, he never did land that big record deal, but he's still writing, still recording, and still as passionate in his 50s as he was in his 20s. Because without stardom, he's still been able to carve out one of the most unique and fulfilling careers in music. You've given people that never had the chance in that fleeting few years in the 60s to see them right. a chance to imagine. Yeah, that, That's where the joy comes in. Whether it be my music or playing somebody else else's stuff. Or doing Paul. Or doing, or doing Paul. To be able to be part of that. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Boy, excellent story, Bill. Uh, John Babcock now has 12 CDs out of his original music, and he continues to perform a one-man tribute to McCartney. And John has now completed the soundtrack for a feature film called Four Lane Highway from New Line Cinema. So, Bill, uh, he's making the most out of it. Really interesting guy. At first, he hated that Paul McCartney connection, and now he just revels in it. And what a great thing for the rest of us. So, you're probably curious to see what he looks like and how much he really looks like Paul. Well, check him out. Just go to growingbolder.com, put Paul McCartney in the search box, and you'll be on your way.
If you listen to some people, they'll tell you the best thing you can do for yourself is drink tea. Is that true? What does it do for you? What kind do you have to drink? Well, that's a great topic for registered dietitian and expert in the field of nutrition. You've seen her on the Today Show, CNN, and the Food Network, and she's the host of the podcast, Straight Talk About Eating Smart. Here is Dr. Susan Mitchell. Thanks, Bill. Hi, foodie friends. Time to get your brew on. How about a little straight talk about drinking smart? And folks, as to whether tea is good for you, the short answer is yes. From tea bag to tea ball, you want to take advantage of its health benefits. Being a Southern girl, I grew up on iced tea. Today, it's very trendy, whether hot or cold, tea and tea shops are popping up all over. Here you go. The most beneficial are green and black teas. Which you prefer is strictly personal preference. Both are good for you. Here's why. Tea contains flavonoids, and flavonoids are antioxidants that deactivate free radicals in the body tied to heart disease and aging. The latest research shows that three to five cups of black or green tea a day can help lower both your total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol as well as lower your blood pressure. So yes, there is something special about teas. You know, that, that is interesting, but still, Susan, I think part of the confusion comes from the fact there are so many kinds of tea. I mean, some have caffeine, some don't, some are in bags, and a lot of them come loose. D- does that play a part in how healthy they are for you? Bill, when it comes to loose tea versus a tea bag, loose tea does increase the amount of antioxidants in your tea by 10 to 30 percent. But when convenience matters, you still get a lot of antioxidant bang for your buck, so go for the tea bag. And there's good news when it comes to caffeine, too. Everyone varies in his or her tolerance to caffeine, but tea contains one-third to one-half the amount of caffeine as compared to coffee. So let's say the typical cup, not supersized, of coffee contains 100 to 130 milligrams of caffeine. Mm, Green tea may have 30 to 40 milligrams of caffeine while black tea contains, say, 50 to 60 milligrams. Interesting information from Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up, one of the top authorities on longevity and aging tells us how the right frame of mind can make all the difference. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. You were listening to Growing Boulder, one of the most interesting and inspiring programs on the radio. How do I know? Because I'm Bill Schaefer, along with Mark Middleton. And our point basically is this. If you follow your passion, if you do what you love, you'll live a better life than you ever expected. And it's also possible that if you start taking care of yourself right now, not only will you live better, you might even live longer. Yeah, the big question is, do you want it? Do you really, really want it? Because there are some fascinating new studies out there that suggest that your desire, your motivation to live a long life can actually be almost as important, maybe even more important than your genetics. Our next guest would know a little something about all of that. She's one of the most uh, foremost authorities on aging in the world. She's the founding director of the Stanford Center on Longevity and has spent most of her life studying the psychology of aging. We are thrilled to welcome to the program Laura Karstensen. Hey, Doc, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Matt, we're, we're thrilled to have you. This incredible career that you've crafted, all the groundbreaking work, all of the major awards, your entire distinguished career really began by accident, and, and I mean literally a car accident. <laughs> that is true. Uh, I, when I was 21, I uh, was in a car accident and ended up on an orthopedic ward for about four months. I had about 20 broken bones and you can picture the cartoonish image of a person laying flat on their back and with their leg tied in the air, you know, hanging in traction. And I was surrounded during those months mostly by older women. 
who were sharing a room. Um, orthopedic wards have bimodal age distributions, young people from uh, car accidents like me and older people with broken bones due to hip fractures or knee fractures. And I got to know them during that time, and um, I also got to identify with them. I mean, I, I was also, you know, experiencing the same kinds of limitations that they were experiencing in their lives. And it changed me and began to, uh, I, I began to question how much of aging is actually a biological process and how much of it is, is, is in fact, a social process. You know, it, it's a fascinating question, and I know one of the things that we love most about you, and there are plenty is your work, really, you're smashing so many ageist stereotypes, and the biggest is the one you call the misery myth. Yes. I think it might be the most pernicious of all, because to the extent that people look at their futures and, and believe that as they grow older, they're going to be lonely and uh, depressed and, and discouraged, uh, why would people prepare? Why would you work hard today to, you know, um, make sure that you'll have resources in the future? Why would you sacrifice today when you're young uh, for a time that you think you'll be forlorn and, and unhappy anyway? So it's a it's a terrible myth. And and the the cool news is that we actually see improvements in mental health with age. It's not just that you don't get worse. Looks like most people get better. Yeah, it's really another great example of of, of you create the the, the reality that, that you believe lies ahead for you. And and the opposite side of that, uh, Dr. Karstensen, is something that you call the positivity effect. What is that and what impact can it have on us? Well, the work that we've done uh, is uh, on motivation. And, and, and motivation and goals um, direct our attention. You know, hu- the human brain isn't a, a computer processing information evenly, uh, regardless of its relevance to us. Rather, we see, hear, remember um, information that is relevant to our goals, and goals change with age. So as people get older and time horizons begin to uh, get shorter, People change. They begin to focus on goals about emotional meaning, about satisfaction in life. They begin to see what's most important. And those goals that are most important for most people involve other people, the people who matter most. And so they begin to focus on those sorts of goals. When they do, they see what's positive more than what's negative because the goals that they're pursuing are directing their attention. Uh, you can look outside and you can see the rain or you can see that darling little bird splashing in the puddle. And your goals direct your attention. Talking with Dr. Laura Carstensen, you know, you recently did a TED Talk, a lecture posted at TED.com. And I don't know if you've looked, but you've got over 300,000 views. That's, <laughs> that's rock star numbers, girl. I mean, your, uh, message, your message is getting out there. That's fantastic. That's great. Uh, that was a, 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 a terrific experience. Jane Fonda organized a session on aging and had invited me to give a talk as part of that session. And all of the talks in it are, are really uh, interesting. Uh, there were a number of interesting people there that day talking about aging and, and, and noting so many of the positive aspects of, of growing older. You have become a major part of, of a support system that that hasn't existed at all previously and still doesn't exist enough today. In fact, you have said that we face one of the greatest opportunities in the history of mankind, more time to chase our dreams, to be productive, and more. But we have to address the societal challenges. What are those challenges, Dr. Carstensen? Well, I think the, the biggest challenge of all is building an infrastructure. It's it's exactly what you were just saying. It's, you know, for, for older people today, there's so many things that they can do and are needed by society to do. But every person's on their own. Uh, you know, to, to older people today are the pioneers of aging. You know, they're, they're out there. Uh, uh, and, and in some ways it's good because you can pursue whatever path you want. But for a lot of people, it'd be great if you could, say, pick up the phone and know that you could call such and such or uh, see clear avenues of uh, uh, interesting and, and worthwhile activities that people pursue in their 80s, in their 90s, and in their 100s. So we, and we don't have that. So it's kind of like every, every person as we grow old today is on their own. You know, contrast that with early life. Imagine if 20-year-olds had no expectations of what they were going to do next. 
it was kind of, well, I don't know. You know, some people are going to get a job. Some people are going to get married. Some people are going to go to college. But that's not the way this happens. We spend all sorts of time preparing them, helping them think about their futures. What are the next steps? Then there are whole institutions like colleges that they can attend that will help them get to those steps. We don't have any of that for people who are older today, and we need to build it fast. So, Doc, when you were laying in that hospital bed with your leg up in the air and waiting for your bones to heal and dreaming about, hey, maybe this would be an interesting career, and you look back now, what do you think? Did you choose the right path? Are you still as excited as ever about what you do for a living? Oh, I I must be among the luckiest people on the planet. <laughs> I have uh, an incredibly interesting uh, job that uh, is 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 never dull, and uh, I am extremely fortunate. I have at times reflected on the past and thought, if had I known at that time that that accident would would catapult me in this direction, would I go through it again? And I'm not sure I'd have the courage, <laughs> but uh, uh, there certainly was a silver lining, and I am very grateful for it every day I'm alive. Well, you have a powerful, articulate voice, and, and one that uh, not only our society, but the world needs to hear, bringing uh, a positive message to aging, uh, telling us that as we get older, not only can we continue to be productive, but we can actually become happier and happier as we age. She is Dr. Laura Karstensen. Uh, Doc, thanks so much, and we really appreciate having you on. Coming up, how a prescription for lifestyle modification may be just the thing you need to live a healthy, active life. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned, minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. My guards stood hard when abstract threats to noble to neglect. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. There is a very interesting shift going on in our society. Do you remember how your mother would say things like, Are you eating enough vegetables? How are you sleeping? Are you getting enough exercise? Well, these days, those questions are being asked by your doctor because it's becoming more and more apparent that the best medicine available today may be a healthy lifestyle. We're going to take a look at the changing role of the physician and how they can be the catalyst to help us not only prevent disease but diminish and in some cases reverse diseases we already have. Did you know that a physician can be board certified in lifestyle medicine? We're going to talk to one right now, someone who can provide personally tailored lifestyle management that improves the life of the patient. From the UCF College of Medicine, let's say hi to Dr. Sharon Wasserstrom. How are you, doctor? I'm great. That's pretty interesting, and that's a big shift. It's different than uh, most of our perceptions of a physician. How did you end up in lifestyle medicine? I ended up in lifestyle medicine because I first started to learn medicine for the purpose of helping patients feel healthier and prevent getting an illness or help treat an illness or help reverse a chronic disease. And that's the whole reason why I went into medicine is to help patients feel more vibrant. Yeah, I I bet, though, I bet it raises a lot of eyebrows because I think most of us as patients are almost conditioned to expect you to prescribe a pill for us when we come see you. It's true. And in this day and age, you know, chronic diseases are being treated the same way as infectious diseases with either pills or injections. Instead of uh, first starting with uh, old-fashioned lifestyle medicine advice. Now, that's kind of interesting. So who would you say should benefit the most from seeing a lifestyle medicine specialist? How do we know when to make an appointment with you? I think really anyone who wants to feel more energized or live healthier can benefit from seeing a lifestyle um, medicine specialist. But, 
you know, definitely if you're a patient already with a chronic condition, um, that would like diabetes or hypertension or obesity, anxiety or depression, to name a few, would definitely benefit most from visiting a lifestyle medicine specialist. We're talking with Dr. Sharon Wasserstrom from the UCF College of Medicine. Does a lifestyle physician still prescribe traditional medications along with, and I guess for lack of a better term, a lifestyle prescription, or is what you do more of an alternative to medicine? No, it's not an alternative to medicine. The goal is less reliance on medication, but it's not necessarily eliminating all medication if it is needed. But the goal is tailoring lifestyle medicine advice to be able to make positive changes in lifestyle in areas such as nutrition, in physical activity, in their stress level, in finding out about their social connectivity, and those factors being taken into consideration and then formulating a plan together as to how to make positive lifestyle changes. How do you, is it hard to get patients to buy into that? I can imagine going to the doctor and describing what's bothering me, and then you look at me and say, well, you need to maybe eat more vegetables and maybe run a little more often, and I look at you and my jaw would drop and go, that's it? Yeah, I mean, some patients at first might be skeptical, but when speaking further and saying that making a lifestyle change is a long-term commitment And when you make that long-term commitment, you might avoid getting a chronic illness or avoid starting to take a medication, or perhaps if you're on several medications in the long run, you might not be on all of those or any of those, then um, the patients with time would prefer that. You know, Dr. Wasserstrom, on on Growing Bolder, this show, we focus more on trying to uh, make people realize that your future is not necessarily predetermined. It doesn't have to be a, a slow and unavoidable descent as we age. Is what you've learned through lifestyle medicine, is that uh, kind of confirming what we've been thinking for a long time, that you really can continue to live a life of purpose and have new adventures and be vibrant as we age? That's most definitely true. I mean, I've had many patients that have come to see me who say that in their family they have diabetes or heart disease and it's just a matter of time and just tell me, doc, when is it time for me to start the medication? And that's with speaking to them and and making them understand that actually they have the power if they want to be actively engaged in their lifestyle and making positive changes to live a healthier life and long-term with no side effects from lifestyle changes as opposed to from medications and less reliance on possible procedures or surgeries in the future. But that, that is an incredibly powerful message for all of us to hear. You know, in the back of your mind, you hoped it was true, but now when you hear it from a physician, it really means something. So I'm buying in now. So aside from diet and exercise, are there other areas that we can focus in on also with lifestyle medicine? I mean, definitely. Um, other than diet and exercise, other areas that are important is stress management, how well you sleep, the quality of your sleep, and also how what support you have, whether it's your friends or your family or your church. You know, being able to foster that also helps in the long run make positive lifestyle changes. Dr. Wasserstrom, do you see this as almost more a a bit of a throwback to the way where your physician used to be like a family friend, somebody who really knew you and understood you instead of just seeing you as, as an illness? It's true. Probably years ago, your family doctor was more your friend and you had a conversation with them and you were able to be more of a partner with your patient to facilitate healthy changes and and, uh, prevent chronic illnesses. And I think, you know, we should go back to that because being more of a partner in care and seeing the patient as someone who should have more of an active role in making lifestyle changes along with the advice of their doctor is uh, the way things should be. 
And it really is a big change for for a physician and probably one that has you inspired for what's coming in the future. It definitely has uh, given me much more inspiration to do what I do, to uh, be able to speak with a patient and get to know where they're coming from, and then together being able to give them a lifestyle prescription that we've made together um, to foster good changes. And then when a patient comes back after doing that, coming back and saying, you know, Doc, I feel better than I ever been, and I'm eating vegetables that I never did, and uh, I feel more vibrant. Well, this is great, Doc. You've made us feel better just from this conversation. It's very exciting. Dr. Sharon Wasserstrom sharing some great information on lifestyle medicine from the UCF College of Medicine. Coming up, four down and five across. We'll explain next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Hi, Mark Middleton. Bill Schaefer is alongside, and you're listening to one of the most important, most empowering shows on the radio. Yeah, that's that's a bold statement, but folks, we back it up every weekend. It's a show that focuses on the hope, inspiration, and possibility that exist in all of our lives, no matter how unlikely our situations may seem. And it wasn't long ago that our next guest would have been completely, or would have completely disagreed. <laughs> you know, you're right about that, because here's what happened. She she was a big-time success, loved her job, and why why not? She was the editor-in-chief of the prestigious Condé Nast magazine House and Garden, remember? Then the economy pulled the rug right out from under her. The magazine folded, and she's out of a job. I mean, it threw her into an absolute panic. But what happened next changed her in ways she documented in an empowering book called Slow Love, How I Lost My Job, Put on My Pajamas, and Found Happiness. Right. Let's say hi to Dominique Browning. Hey, Dominique, how are you? Hey there, how are you? I'm great. So how did you find happiness in your pajamas? <laughs> you know what? I think most of your listeners would agree that it's really nice sometimes to just put on those PJs and not expect very much out of the day. Well, it's great if you can stay in those, but, you know, that's where the depression starts sneaking in and you start thinking, well, well that's right. And, I, you know, it's, um, I, I, I do think we don't give ourselves time enough to mourn sometimes. You know, we're really tough on ourselves and we say, okay, get up, get going. And we don't really honor the, the shock of what's happened to us. But there is a certain point at which it is time to get going. The thing about being in my pajamas was that it really is a metaphor for going back and thinking about what I valued in life now. And, you know, with the amount of time I have left on this world, who knows how long, um, what am I going to do with those days? What can, I, what can I do that will make the most of those days? And that's the kind of thinking one does in one's pajamas. <laughs> you know, Dominique, we often say that the, the highest purpose of any celebrity is, is simply to, to fail as an example for the rest of us. Uh, you, you really were and are a celebrity in the publishing industry, and that's really one of the neat things about your book. Now, it, it's about discoveries that you made as a result of losing your job, but the things you learned and write about are really life lessons for all of us. What can we learn from what you went through? You know, I think one thing we can learn is to find that focus again on the miracle of this world around us. We get really busy. We're really uh, energized by our work or taking care of our children or our elderly parents. Whatever it is, we rush through life. And we don't give ourselves time to just stop every single day, look around and say, 
wow, what an amazing world. What am I doing to both appreciate it and to make it just a little bit better? You know, isn't it funny? We all think about that. We all wonder what is our purpose in life, but we're too busy to really give it much thought until something happens like losing your job. Then you've got all kinds of time, but you're in just the worst state of mind possible. That's right. It's true. Um, and, you know, that is, in a way, the silver lining. There's definitely a panic that sets in because how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to pay off your mortgage? You know, all, the, all of it. Um, but somewhere in there, uh, movement begins to happen, movement towards a new kind of life, a new kind of openness to the world. And, um, and sometimes that means a new direction for work or for your own purpose that you never could have predicted. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of being open and letting things drift a little bit can be very valuable, although it is frightening. You know, sometimes it, it seems like... Uh, you know, the comfort of the cage that confines us, keeps us from doing anything else. Uh, fair to say you would have never left your job on your own and that in retrospect, uh, it was really now the best thing that could have happened to you? You are absolutely right on both counts. I never would have left um, because I have always worked and it would have been much too frightening to head out into the unknown. Um, <clears throat> and just like what happens to many of us in relationships, we stay in even though we might not be happy because we're afraid of what might be unknown. And then somehow we get shoved out or we do finally make a move and we turn around and say, wow, that was so painful and it was the best thing that could have happened. What's your life like now, Dominique? How did you turn it around? How did you recover? Now I am running something called Moms Clean Air Force, which is an organization devoted to fighting air pollution to protect our children's health. And Uh, You know, it's really grown out of my renewed love for this gorgeous planet we've been given and wanting to leave the world behind that much better for the next generation. Um, I've learned a lot about how we can save energy and not waste so much and not pollute so much and how it can affect our world in a really nice way. Uh, you know, uh, folks, we're talking with Dominique Browning, who was the editor-in-chief of House and Garden. She lost her job when the magazine folded, didn't know what to do. And, um, you, know, you know, Dominique, what is the takeaway from your story? What, what, what's the message that you want everybody to learn from your experience? Uh, there are two messages. One is find time every single day to just sit down and enjoy the world. You know, we all glance out the window and say, oh, what a beautiful sunset, and then we turn our back to clean the dishes or prepare dinner or whatever it is. Why not pull up a chair and look at that sunset? You don't have to go to India. You don't have to go to an ashram. You don't have to go to a retreat. Every single day you can just stop and admire what we've been given and appreciate the miracle that is this life. And that alone will change the way you move through the world in astonishing, astonishing ways. And, you know, we need to give ourselves permission to take that bit of time every day to reground, literally. That's the biggest takeaway. From that stems all kinds of things, including the importance of resilience and things will get better but you have to be ready to bounce back and take strength from the world around you. Well, you can see why there are so many fans of, of Dominique Browning and why she was so successful with a magazine, because everything that she wrote, you know, she's got such a great voice mark and a great way of, uh, of relating situations that we all go through and, and turning them into positive. She established quite a reader base, and by continuing to write books like this, empowering people, that voice continues, and she helps us search for our own voice. And I guess the most important thing about that is that our lives really are ongoing stories. And what we learn here is that the key is to keep evolving and to keep searching and keep moving forward. The book is called Slow Love, How I Lost My Job, Put on My Pajamas, and Found Happiness. Our thanks to Dominique Browning. Isn't it interesting how fast this show can fly by when you're talking about ways to put the sizzle back in your life? (laughs) 
I mean, from guests who prove that hope and inspiration are qualities that never fade and who prove that opportunities do surround us and that no matter what your circumstances are, there are changes you can make that will result in a more vibrant and fulfilling life. Yeah, and the fun does not stop here, folks. In the coming weeks, you will hear from more people who are not just talking the talk. They are living their lives in ways that defy conventional wisdom. People who are getting every drop out of life that they can, people who are still setting goals, breaking records, seeking new adventures. And here's the good news. Any of our guests could be you if you just get out there and start growing bold. Give it a try, folks. You might like it. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. So much older than I'm young.